Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Teenage Kicks. Tom Holland plays the only superhero who still gets homework in Spider-Man Homecoming, but is the web-slinger back on form? Plus, we embrace the rapture with not one, but two Terrence Malick movies, the star-studded Song to Song, and in the film club, his soaring 2011 epic, The Tree of Life. We've got the truth, we've got the movies, it's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. So this week, um, I'm Nick Donkoff, in case you're a regular listener. You may have heard me fill in uh, for James a few weeks ago, and today I'm joined by a man who's much more experienced at doing this podcast than I am. That's the editor of Little White Lies, David Jenkins. Hey there. And I'm also joined by Eleanor Lazic. You see, I asked you how to pronounce your first name. I didn't even ask you how to pronounce your surname. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's fine. Oh, good. All right. Good. I didn't even need to worry about it. Uh, Eleanor is a film critic for Little White Lies and also for Seventh Row. So um, it's going to be an interesting week this week. Spider-Man Homecoming and Terrence Malick are, um, well, let's say there are different parts of the world of cinema, aren't they? So. Yes, we are. Let's get to some of the correspondence we've had. Uh, we've had uh, quite a lot. We always like you getting in touch with us. I'll tell you how to uh, do that in a second. Uh, we got a t- tweet from the Hipster Llama saying, I love your podcast. Um, however, after having seen Baby Driver twice, I have to take issue with the comment brackets from David. Uh, this is something hey. that you said. Oh, yes, I heard this, that it's not about anything. I did think you might get a bit of comeback on that. I strongly believe that it's a film about loving music and music being a key part to your life as it is to mine. The movie demonstrates this in the best way possible by being itself demonstrably, deliriously in love with music through its editing, direction, cinematography. It is as in love with music as I am, as Edgar Wright is. It hits the mood of what it is like to experience the world through the music that I know and have grown up with so perfectly. It's inspirational. How do you... uh Oh, God, do I have to come back to yeah, that? Yeah, of course you do. Oh this, my God. this is a direct uh, reference to you saying it's not about anything. Is it about music? Is that enough for a film to be about? Well, I mean, if it's, I mean, all, all films are kind of about music. No, no, that's a, ba- that's that's a really bad comeback. Unless, yeah, <laughs> silent ones, not so much. I'll let the hipster llama have that. Um, I don't disagree with yeah. that, what he's saying. Yeah. I maybe don't feel that that's maybe enough yeah. for I think, me. Yeah, like I think the context of what you were saying was really that it didn't have anything of great substance behind the feeling that it feelings that it elicited. Indeed, I think I think that maybe, maybe it captured. Maybe yeah, it is about music, and it is also captures the sort of ephemeral yeah. um, essence of music as well as a sort of 
background wallpapery thing. Yeah. Maybe I was a bit heavy-handed in saying it's not about anything, but maybe I didn't feel it was about that much of okay. real emotional substance. Well, there is no doubt that on uh, on this particular episode, we will be talking about films that are about something. Uh, we also got a message about Okja, which, of course, uh, premiered on Netflix last week. And uh, David, you were talking about last week. And uh, Connor Gately got in touch. He says, so my wife and I sat down to watch Okja last night. And I just wanted to say that it has inspired my wife to become a vegetarian, brackets, Again, so she has been a vegetarian before she's lapsed. Although pretty straightforward in its storyline, she found the abattoir scenes quite emotive. We tried to watch Earthlings a few year, years back and had to turn it off pretty early as it was too gruesome for her. Okja had the same impact, but dressing up in a fantastical setting allowed it to be consumed more easily. It's interesting that I think there's a point to be made about how in cinema, sometimes if you present something in an almost blunt documentary-style way, that can have an effect, but equally doing something in a more removed way, can be equally powerful. Yeah, to me, in Ogja, when I watched it, that really, like, I was really surprised by just uh, the this, this sudden, like, surge of real violence, because obviously, I mean, the whole rest of the movie is, like, fantasy and yeah, stuff, yeah. and, like, there are no super pigs in the world yet. And then, then suddenly, when there's this very realistic abattoir scenes, I was just like, that's probably just how they actually do it to cows. Yeah. And it was just, like, really bluntly presented with, like, just long shots of just what they do and it was just so powerful and moving and and just horrible and it was like because the the whole story to me of the film is like very like cute and fantasy like like a fairy tale yeah it's fairy tale and it knows that I think the movie is very knowing yeah. about yeah. how silly its whole story is but then when it gets to that point it's like as if it justifies the whole silliness of the rest it's yeah. like this was silly but this is real and we yeah. both, we know the difference it lulls you into a false sense of security I exactly. guess as well doesn't it and, and I thought that wham. was very powerful don't forget you can get in touch with us um, at LWLies on Twitter and Facebook uh, email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com and after um, this brief uh, array of drumming we're going to have Spider-Man Homecoming <laughs> What was it, Ned? What are you doing in my room? Well, let me in. You said we're gonna finish a Death Star. She doesn't know. Nobody knows. Well, I mean, Mrs. Stark knows because he made my soup, but that's it. Tony Stark made you that? Are you an Avenger? Yeah, basically. <gasps> Dude, you can't tell anybody about this. Gotta keep it a secret. I'll level with you. I don't think I can keep this a secret. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I'm gonna tell you about this at school tomorrow, okay? Great. Can you spit Venom? You have any idea? Can you summon an army of spiders? No, Ned. So in that clip, we heard Tom Holland uh, as Spider-Man and uh, his best mate, who is called Ned. Um, so this is... How many Spider-Man movies have we had now? So we've had... Uh, Sam Raimi did uh, three with diminishing results. Then we had Andrew Garfield took over. Mark Webb took over as director. Andrew Garfield took over as uh, Spider-Man. We had two of those. So this is one of those ones where technically is this Spider-Man 6. They've avoided the problem of it being a reboot by not showing us the origin story, have they? So instead, the film opens with Spider-Man having a superpowers, and that clever thing of already having introduced us to Spider-Man in uh, Captain America Civil War. Is that right? Do you know, there's been so many Marvel films over the last few years. <laughs> I start forgetting which one is which. And there's an interesting question to be put here, actually, which is how up on that Marvel universe do you need to be to immediately get what's going on in this film? In the case of uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, I don't think you really need to have seen Civil War. Uh -huh. They also even call back to that scene in case you've missed it, in case you've like forgotten about it or you haven't seen it. It opens with that, doesn't movie. it? It yeah, opens exactly. with like, footage that he's recorded himself on his phone. Yeah. Now, they made a big play with this movie of saying, 
this is Spider-Man as he's meant to be as a kid. And I think Tom Holland is the is technically the youngest person to play Spider-Man. He's 20. Yeah. And I think, is he meant to be like 14, 15? They never make it explicit. But he's, is he at junior high? I always get confused about the American high school system. High school, no? I yeah. remember people like complaining that Andrew Garfield, I think he was like... He was like 23 or something. Yeah, he was, he was sort of much, much older, saying that, you know, he's way, way too old to be playing... But, of course, but even when he came on board, he was much younger than Tobey Maguire had been. Indeed, yeah. But this is the first time. He, Tom Holland genuinely does look like a teenager, and he's quite yeah. slight. Yeah. And, of course, that's what's interesting about Spider-Man, isn't it? Is that Spider-Man is a kid. So in a genre that originally was aimed at kids, the comic books at least, this isn't something unattainable. The, whole, the sort of point of Spider-Man is you, you could be Spider-Man. But in the Sam Raimi films, I seem to remember that he was in college. He was in high school. I suppose, I yeah. Mean, this is what I'm driving at, really, is that, as always, the marketing team are trying to sell us on the idea that yeah. here is some new way of doing it. I, I think for most of these comic book movies, though, what they because there are so many comics out there and there are little kind of adjunct stories mm. and little apocryphal, like, oh, what if Spider-Man was at college? Or what yeah. if Spider-Man was, was a Nazi? You know, like... Um, it's almost used as a, as a sort of little grab bag for the movies so they can say, yeah. well, oh, this this kind of borrows from, from this universe and this kind of side side story and this subplot and they kind of mangle them all together. Yeah, and you could say that the most important thing that's happened that's changed about Spider-Man is actually the behind-the-scenes boring production stuff, which, which was that Spider-Man was always a property that was owned by Sony and it wasn't actually anything to do with Marvel. Marvel had sold the rights years ago in the same way that Fox owned X-Men. And there was this feeling that although all the old Spider-Man films made money, that they were never quite pleasing people. They were never quite getting it right. Certainly not since the the first two Sam Raimi ones, particularly the second one that everybody really loves. No, but that's that's. I think that's a misnomer. I think the first three Sam Raimi films really? all the third did one? insanely well. The third, oh, well yeah. the, the third one, business the third one made a lot. Of, I mean, critically, it wasn't that well liked. But the point I was making is that this one has basically been handed over to Marvel, and they now can incorporate it into their universe. So this has got the stamp of Marvel all over it. So, you know, I hadn't really noticed before. When you say the stamp of Marvel, you mean very generic, feels the same as all the other Marvel movies. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, what I should ask you is, is what do I mean by that? I'm just going to bat that one back at you. Mm. I, I suppose what I'm saying is, I looked at the director, I, I realised that I hadn't really been aware before I saw the film who the director was, and I looked I mean, at the yeah. list of people who've written the screenplay, and it's like 10 different people. And so this is very much part of a big machine, is this something new or is this just more of the same old Marvel? Well, to me, that's the, the problem with this movie is that it tries to be both a Marvel movie, like the Avengers movies and yeah. the Captain America movies, but it still tries to be Spider-Man. And to me, that's like the big problem with me because to me, Spider-Man is this kid who has like no gadgets, yes. no technology, yeah. who's a big nerd, really like kind of, you don't even like him sometimes in Tobey Maguire character. He was oh. like... Really, st- I mean, he was just like had no social skills, and you could like um, Mary Jane was just so annoyed at him all the time, and that was like so <laughs> relatable. And that if they was in college, made it even more cringe. It was yeah. like, oh my god, like you're supposed to know this, and now it's like he's in high school because they want to be like, of course, like marketing, but also to do like John Hughes like coming of age. There was thing. a lot of talk about John Hughes yeah, being an influence. Well, I'm not sure I felt that much of it. John Hughes was like, I mean, Breakfast Club is absolutely amazing to me and yeah. this was like kind of touching on the it's like it's like it does this thing like all the Avengers films it just touches on themes but doesn't really explore them yeah. so you have like he runs for a garden like in Ferris uh, Bueller, Ferris Bueller. Yes, yeah, oh yeah. wow like, that's John Hughes no that's not enough for John Hughes to me I mean I did think Tom Holland was really good 
Yeah. Yeah. I he agree. Was, he was nice. Well, I'm he t- was really nice. He was actually, I preferred much, I much preferred him from Andrew Garfield, which I thought was yeah. just really bad. I don't like him. But I love as him an as an, actor. I love Andrew Garfield as an actor. Oh, and I yet it still didn't work, quite work for me in, in yeah. that role. No, I agree. And I think Tom Holland, it feels like this is, he just feels like this is his part. Yeah. I sometimes, so well. I sometimes felt with this film that his performance was just erred on the side of like intense, shrill. You know, he, he plays it at this kind of fever pitch throughout the whole film. Yes. It's this almost kind of, I don't want to say a kind of cokey performance in that, you know, like that kind of classic 80s, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. bulging veins and kind of like, you James know, Woods clenched. It's a James Woods clenched performance. <laughs> but because um, I'm sure that that, he, that is not his his style. He's a clean cut kid. But, and the same for James Woods, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and, um, and he said that his one of his influences which I think he maybe makes way too obvious in his performance is Michael J. Fox as, oh, as Marty oh, yeah, you can see that. And um, when I saw the film, I thought, oh my God, he's obviously channeling Marty McFly, that yeah, kind yeah. of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, disheveled, but actually kind of cool kid yeah, yeah. who is who is on top of stuff, but does it in this way that where his head's looking one way and his body's moving the other way. Uh, you know, as soon as I Googled like Tom Holland, Marty McFly, there was this list of things going... Well, Michael J. Fox and Mime Fly were my two biggest influences I in this performance. And it was, really it was a bit point. like, that's that's kind of cool, but a high school movie can be a high school movie without having to reference other high school movies. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I didn't really feel that the high school element, I didn't think the films had anything really inter- that interesting to say about the experience of high school. Mm. I actually but, like the clip that we played i like the idea that he had a best friend that was like oh my god i can't believe you're a superhero you know there's not been a lot of that previously in spider-man films unless i'm just no but that was the beauty of it that was like he was completely on his own utterly alone okay yes that's interesting and that's that's why he's impossible with great power comes great responsibility is that all those films and his impossibility to tell either his best friend james franco yeah or mary jane was what like made them so annoyed at him and he lost all his friends and it was amazing it was just like Wow, like you're just so alone and your life is you're so miserable, but you have to save the world because that's yeah. your power now. And I don't think this movie is about anything. Oh, uh, here we go again. Movies that aren't about anything. Do you, know, do you know what? Here's something that I found really interesting about this film, like and and it was one of those things where I was watching it and I couldn't tell if it was like on purpose or just <laughs> just some kind of weird affectation. But like the sequence, so there is a sequence as you mentioned before with um where he's um where the film is like name checking Ferris Bueller and he's yes. running through these these gardens. Yeah. But the the difference being is that he's kind of laying waste to all these suburban houses. Yes. He's like he's pulling tree houses off trees, he's yeah. smashing um uh, falling through sheds. Falling through sheds, smashing yeah. fences. And I think he does shout sorry as he's doing it. He's, he's sh- yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> fine. And 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 the and one of the actual theme that the sort of in the intro to the film, you see um, Michael Keaton's antagonist. He is introduced, and I think this is really fascinating. He is a he is a contractor. Yes. who has been brought in to clear up the mess the caused by the Avengers. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fascinating. This, I mean, you know, acknowledging this idea that like wanton destruction in these movies does it's have a, a consequence yeah. and like there there seemed to be some theme throughout the film of like the sort of careless carefree nature of superheroes and the way that how the way they operate 
It's like, we're going to smash your house. We're going to take your car. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But it's all going to be so you're not being blown up later on by some yes. like, maniac. So I, I think there's also an interesting point to be made. because Michael, So Michael Keaton is this antagonist, as you say. He's a salvage constructor. He gets the contract taken away from him. He's very bitter. And as a result, he steals some of the alien tech and he builds alien weapons. He kind of retcons them and he builds himself a suit and he becomes, I don't even know whether he's ever referred to as this, but basically the baddie is called the Vulture, which of course immediately then calls to mind Birdman, which is a, a reference that you wouldn't, there's not much overlap you wouldn't have thought between <laughs> Spider-Man Homecoming and the Birdman, but there it is. Also, you have this typically spiky performance from Michael Keaton. But there is an interesting thing at the heart of it, which I couldn't quite make my mind up again, like you say, David, about what the intent was here, which is that he has a legitimate grievance. And he is saying the little guys always get screwed over and they get screwed over by the rich. Now, we're living in times where we're hearing this all the time. And this is the good guy's narrative. This isn't the bad guy's narrative. So when he says, it's easy for people like Tony Stark, he's a billionaire, I was, sitting, I was sort of thinking, well, y- yeah. And I was on his side, which I think sort of has to be the point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have introduced that storyline. But then when Robert Downey Jr. was turning up, which he does at several key points in this film, he's important as a kind of father figure to Peter Parker, I found myself increasingly irritated with him, and I was not on his side. I've gone off Tony Stark and all that glibness and all that kind of smart mouth energy that Robert Downey Jr. brought to the first Iron Man film. I don't like Iron Man anymore. I don't like Tony Stark. He is too entitled. He is too smug. And so I find myself rooting for Michael Keaton. But that's that's the whole point of Iron Man. I don't think you're meant to fully like him. And I think actually one of the kind of strengths of this film is that I, do, I I like the fact that you 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 don't hate the bad yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. you know that you there is there is actually some shades to him, and yeah. there, there, it seems like there's so many films where a bad guy is motivated That's through right. reasons yeah. of like miscellaneous evil, and yeah. uh, and and this one at least I think tries to. Give, give a kind of, but yeah. I think that's what the movie wants you to believe. I don't think he actually does that. He starts uh-huh. at the beginning. You're like, oh wow, like fair enough. I mean, they took it from you. You, you yeah. have no job now. Yeah. Everyone's fired, and one is like, I don't have money to pay the rent and the family and stuff. And then he just becomes a full-on baddie until the very end, until the next movie. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I mean, if they just start <laughs> with the same thing from the the Sam Raimi movies, which is like, you know, the second one, uh, Doc Ock, Doctor Octopus. He's like. He lost his wife or something. And then he becomes crazy with yes. like rage and he does this thing. And what Toby Maguire does is, dude, calm down. It's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't do this. And then he like sacrifices himself, like um, Dr. Octopus sacrifices himself to save the world because he's like, oh my God, I, I, I did something really bad. I'm really sorry, guys. I was just really sad. And like, that's really <laughs> beautiful. And he is like, well, we understand, but you know, he has more money and you're going to lose and you're going to become a full-on criminal now, and no one's on your side, and no one understands why you're sad. And it's like, you're supposed to, like, it's just the movie doesn't, doesn't actually want to, like, commit to anyone or to any idea. I would say, before we give the scores, there are two things that if you are intent on going to see this movie anyway, which a lot of people will, no matter what scores we give it, there are a couple of things that I think are worth thinking about after you've seen the film. There's a genuine moment of real menace, which we talked about before. I'm not going to tell you what that is. And there is also a really quite surprising twist that happens as well which genuinely was a surprise and that is unusual in a movie to not have flagged that up really obviously in advance so I would say look out for those two things but let us do (laughs) some scores so I need three numbers from both of you and I am going to start with David well I'm going to say my anticipation is two because it's a Marvel movie and 
there is nothing to anticipate. It's like it's like anticipating eating pasta or something. I mean, it's like you know, love you, pasta. I love pasta. You know, <laughs> some people love pasta, but it's pasta is pasta. Okay. Uh, all right. Should, I should like porridge or something, and I'm not talking like fancy porridge. So two for anticipation. And, and I say before I, you get too bogged down yeah. in carbohydrates. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say I enjoyed it a, a three. I think it, it. I mean, it's going to be rare where I really like a Marvel movie. I mean, I, the, the, I think the one I actually liked was the most was Logan earlier this year. Not really. Um, one of them. Yeah. But not. But this that was a different type yeah, of Marvel yeah. movie. I think. And then. And, uh, and then three as well. I, I think there, it wasn't just a kind of two, three, three simple sugar rush movie that it maybe I maybe thought it was going to be. It's also always worth saying. I think that that always too long. Yes. Oh yeah. It's it, this is a how long is it? Two hours, two hours twenty minutes or something. Yeah. I've got two relatively young children. They both went to see it. It's too long. I mean, I know it's a 12A, so, you know, maybe it's not a movie for kids anyway. They enjoyed it. They say they enjoy it afterwards, but there's great swathes of it where they're bored. You can tell it. Here's, here's a double dare to Marvel movie, because yeah. I know they're all listening. Yeah. Make a 90-minute film. It's just this... Go on. We, we've got into this mad situation where it's the it's the blockbusters that are two and a half hours long, and the, quote, in, uh, serious movies are short. The thing is, if you have a 90-minute film, you can play it, like, one more time a day, and you can make a lot more money. I mean... The small place, the, 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 the bottom line says that, that that's how they should be d- doing these I things. I feel like they say to themselves, this is what the public want. And I think the, what the public want is a we halfway through. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Elena, your scores, please. Um, anticipation, I would say two. Actually, I would I would say this. Uh, Spider-Man's appearance in Captain America Civil War was the best thing about this entire movie and really made you aware of how, why he's the best superhero yeah. of all the Marvels. Because he doesn't have gadgets. Yes. He, he just like jumps around and he's really cool and he's like... He's really funny and he like says really weirdy things. Uh-huh. But then turns out um, exp- uh, enjoyment, I would say two. Oh. No, actually, I would say Ouch. three. Let's okay. Let's be nice. Because it turns out the movie also is like, well, he doesn't have gadgets, but then he does. And, and it, <laughs> it doesn't actually mean it. it doesn't. You just know that in the next movie, he's going to have his really fancy suit and he's just not going to. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be able to like shoot at criminals from his sofa because he doesn't even need to move. He doesn't need to be clever or witty or to rely on his like spider instincts or anything. He's just like. Listen, I'm Marvel. This is not what you should be doing. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Listen to me. And, and uh, uh, but, after I would, taste. but I would say three instead of two because there's still some. Actually, really funny jokes, okay. and that reveal yeah, yeah. really was really funny. Like yes. People were clapping in, in yeah, this because yeah, yeah. they were like, "Oh wow!" Like for two seconds after it happened, they were like, "Oh my god!" And they were clapping. It was really funny. Um, well, I actually, say yeah, I would say in retrospect too, because the more I think about it, the more I'm sad and yeah. I miss the Sam Raimi movies. Well, I was going to say, I think the context of it is David doesn't really like superhero movies. He's given it two, three, three. Eleanor, you clearly like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. You've given it 232. So there's a context there. I think I expected better things in advance. I think I'm going to say that I gave it three three beforehand in anticipation. I don't watch trailers anyway. And I just, I'm always slightly sold on the idea. They they get me with this idea that here here comes something new. And I was keen on the idea of Tom Holland. I was keen on the idea of the teen movie. And so I had three in advance, but I think it's still three at the time. And I've got to say it's it's three afterwards. So from... Some people might say The Ridiculous to the Sublime, but you'll have to wait and see. Uh, We are going to talk about Terence Malick's new film, Song to Song, next. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, Terrence Malick. This is a guy who was famous for a long time for being, A, a recluse, which he still pretty much is. Nobody really sees him. I think he did do an interview with Richard Linklater a couple of years ago, but you know, very few people know what he looks like. But he was also very famous for like making movies after taking the biggest holiday that you could possibly have. So he starts out in 1972 with Badlands, then he waits six years before Days, from, Days of Heaven comes out, although he'd shot it years before, he just spent years and years editing it. And then there was this 20-year gap before The Thin Red Line. And then there was another long gap before new, The New World. And then there was another fairly long gap before The Tree of Life. But then since then, wallop, wallop, wallop. We've had three Terrence Malick movies in the last 12 months. We've had To the Wonder, which Ben Affleck described as, uh, he said, I was in the only bad Terrence Malick movie. That's arguable. Yeah. Wrong. Possibly wrong Wrong from either side of uh, the <laughs> there argument the there, maybe. Only one. And then <laughs> Night of Cops last, only last year with Christian Bell. And already we've got another one. This is called Song to Song. It is set in Austin, Texas. And again, the kind of pre-sell of this is that it's set in the music scene of Austin, Texas. And it's a love story. Who would like to talk to me about Song to Song? I'm, I'm not actually going to give you a choice. I'm going to say it. Eleanor, even especially because you're pointing at David because you want him to talk about it first. Well, well, I would say um, basically it's about these three people, three main people. So uh, Rooney Mara, Michael Fassbender, and Ryan Gosling. Yeah, and uh, they all have uh, various roles in the music industry in Austin, Texas. And um, it's all about them. There's like voiceover from, I think, all three of them yeah. talking about how they feel and talking about the other people they love and why they're sad or why they're happy or what they're looking for in the classic Terence Malick, very, um, I would say, poetic way. Lyrical. Uh, lyrical. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a narrative progression where people get together, people break up and stuff like that. So it's not linear, though, is it? There were it's a few moments linear. where There's I was thinking, flashbacks and I can't stuff. quite. I mean, there was one scene where Ryan Gosling had slightly blonder hair, and that gave me a clue that yeah. that was probably earlier. But there'd been, I think, there'd been other scenes where I suddenly thought, oh, hang on, I think this is happening earlier. But for once in a film, because normally that would be important, I don't think that necessarily matters no. in a Terrence Malick movie, whether you are moving forward in a linear fashion. This yeah. is also why I thought it was almost pointless to talk about the plot because yeah. Malik films aren't about plots, they're about feelings. Is that fair, David? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this sort of new phase of his career, which I kind of guess began with, with The Tree of Life, I think is all about rejecting this idea of like 
the classic narrative arc yeah, of yeah, yeah. you know having like beginning, middle, and end, and a resolution and a and an introduction. And it's just I think it's these films are more about trying to emulate a, a, a kind of poetically heightened reality if that yeah. doesn't sound too pretentious like, you try, can't tr- be too pretentious when you're talking about Terrence no, Malick really because no. otherwise what do you talk about <laughs> um, it's, I mean it's, it's very much about the cinematic image isn't it it's about what you're seeing I suppose is what I'm saying yeah. I mean I find myself with these most recent three movies almost zoning out uh, of what is being said in whispered voiceover I love you I love you I loved you. I loved you since I was born. I loved you before I was born. You know, there's a, there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, people take the Mickey out of it and say it's like perfume ads, don't they? Yeah. And a I, lot I, of people. In fact, I was reading through the Rotten Tomato um, quotes this morning on the on the song to song page. Yeah. And either loads of critics are copying each other, or everyone's had the same idea to call this film a perfume ad. I think I've never seen a perfume ad like this. It's frankly. Calvin yeah, Klein. I think perfume ads like this. They're Calvin Klein ads, basically from like ten years ago. <laughs> but I think you know you have to give uh, Malik some credit for probably inventing this kind of form. I think what he sort of stripped away, and it's going to be hard for me to say this without it sounding like a criticism, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Is he's almost stripped away character a bit. Michael Fassbender plays a producer, and he's a slightly nefarious producer. He basically takes Ryan Gosling under his wing. He's, Rooney Mara has been his secretary, and she's been his lover, and he might be interested in her as a musician or not. You get a fairly clear idea that maybe he's a, a bad guy, in inverted commas. But apart from that, there wasn't a lot of the time where I felt I knew these characters. I felt like I was watching Ryan Gosling. I felt like I was watching Rooney Mara doing sort of almost versions of himself. And it doesn't help that you know that the way that he's shot his past couple of movies, and this one in particular is sort of like that. Is he sort of basically gone, here you are, stand by the side of the stage during a concert in Austin and improvise. Or just stand in this architecturally stunning house and improvise. They often come up with the same stuff. There's a lot of touching each other's hands. There's lots of, you know, flirting with each other. And to start off with, it's beautiful. But I think if I do have an issue with it, it's that over the course of this two-hour nine minutes, this is closer in running time to Spider-Man than it is to Badlands or Days of Heaven, I should point out. I, I sort of lose interest in the repetition of that. But is, should I, is that the point, the repetition, David? I, I kind of agree with this idea that he is sort of disposing of, of this very conventional idea of characters. You know, movies are built on this idea of having characters who are quote-unquote relatable mm. and you can understand mm-hmm. them, you can comprehend their movements and you can see their journey, you can see what they're learning, you can see how they're learning it. And it's very kind of like, it's, very, it's a very technical and quite synthetic thing, but I guess it's what makes a lot of movies movies. Yeah. And I think with these, what, with these films, what, what Terence Malick's doing is rejecting that idea and, and saying that like, what if we looked at characters as just a bunch of ticks about a bunch of you know like we, we, maybe we're not that interesting maybe we don't learn things maybe maybe we just we're just impulse we're pure impulse we're pure desire we just go where we want we do what we want we move Th- these aren't the these aren't the primary movements these are the secondary movements and i think that song to song probably most of all in his later films are all it's just all about it's almost like this compendium of little very very it's just expressions and 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 movements and I think you know like looping back to the to the um, the letter by um, what what's his chop the heart of the llama man um, hipster llama about you know baby driver being about music here we go and um, I mean are you going to tell me what uh, well this movie's about well, does it have to be about something? no no I mean but I th- I think maybe you could see it as 
being about life as a mixtape. You know, it's like song, 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 song. You, you know, you don't know what's coming next. Sometimes one tune will neatly segue yeah. into the next tune. Yeah. Sometimes you're listening to a song and, you know, it's in your earphones and you, you're in a place and it's like, wow, I can't believe how amazing this song and this landscape. But now I feel like up. you're talking about Baby Driver and maybe not song to song. Oh, no. I don't no. always feel like. So, for example, one of the things. But you know what? The difference between, the difference between this and Baby Driver yeah. is. Baby Driver, Colossal, but yeah, Baby Driver is about Edgar Wright. And I think this is a more empathetic film. This isn't about. Uh, that's interesting. The, I, Eleanor is definitely making a face there. I, can I, I just talk? Can I talk about the music very briefly? Then we're going to come on to your issue with that statement, other, which is that it felt a little bit to me like he's basically dropped the Terence Malick project into Austin, Texas, around these films before there's an idea. And you get some um, real-life rock stars that turn up. So John Lydon turns up. Patti Smith has a, has a couple of scenes. Amazing and, scenes. Um, but but even, even Malik, yeah, she was really interesting, wasn't she? But there's, there's, even Malik doesn't operate completely outside the system. So when you, And this happens in other movies sometimes with celebrity cameos. You put Rooney Mara in a scene with uh, Patti Smith, or you put Michael Fassbender in a scene with Johnny Rotten, and there's this strange tearing of the fabric of the film because suddenly it's like, well, I know you're Johnny Rotten, but I also know you're Michael Fassbender, mm. but I also know that you're not meant to be Michael Fassbender in this moment. Uh, so I, you, I, I think as well that, that when that happens, you just feel even more excluded because they're all like famous. Is this, is this going to be part of your overarching point yeah, about the film? My, my, thing, my thing about also why it's said there in Austin, Texas, yeah. in the music industry where everyone's kind of like trying to be rich or rich. Yeah. I think what Malik is doing with this movie and even with the previous one to a certain degree is he doesn't want his characters to have anything happen to them from the outside and he just explores, the, explores their emotions yeah, as they evolve life. themselves. Yeah. That's why he has to focus on privileged people yes. who don't have anything out happen to them from the outside world. Yes. And he's like, oh, well, the, the emotions evolve through this and they don't themselves try understand it. So they talk to try and understand it. And they talk and they talk about what happened to them. Their parents, of course, which is, that's the thing with the Malik, with Malik movies. You're like, well, this is kind of like, I mean, to me, I'm like, well, this is kind of basic. Like, but uh, I mean, it's true. Like when I love someone and I feel bad, I think about my entire life and I think yeah, about my parents yeah, and yeah. about like what they taught me about love and friendship. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, but why are you doing it this way? Yeah. And I'm like, I could watch another movie that does this, the same thing, that talks about the same things. Well, you can. But I would say this, which is that when I started watching Song to Song, I got exactly the same feeling that I've had with the last two, which is actually a sort of feeling of ecstasy at how absolutely stunningly beautiful these films are. And his use of orchestral music is stunning, always. Although I did think that setting it in Austin, Texas and having it about contemporary music, he's still layering it with all this orchestral classical music. Like he doesn't quite, he's not quite into the Austin, Texas music scene at all. This is just part of his framework. But I realised that I started thinking, I like this more than Night of Cops because I really didn't take to Night of Cops. And I realised maybe I just like Ryan Gosling more than I like Christian Bale. And that maybe that's, again, like I say, this issue with casting people. There's also a strange moment, sorry to keep coming back to this, there's a really strange moment where Val Kilmer turns up. Oh, yeah. Basically playing Jim Morrison, doing <laughs> reprising his performance for Oliver Stone's films, and I had a very weird experience of actually wanting to see The Doors again, which hasn't happened in a very, very long time because it's not a great movie. And he's not playing Val Kilmer, so again, you're like, okay, so you're Ryan he's Gosling, not. but you're not. No, he's not playing Val Kilmer. Oh, wow. He is playing a character. Wait for it, called Dwayne. Oh, what, what, what are you saying about like having the having this kind of mix of like reality and fantasy? 
Um, yeah, I get, I, I, I get what you mean there. I, I, I suspect that it's kind of one of the inherent flaws in the actual kind of making of the movie. I mean yeah. that I think the, these are like experimental films. There's no, yeah. there's no other way to, yeah, to, yeah. to slice it really. But like, he has to have these big names in the films to give them this kind of commercial, like because they cost so does. much to make. They've got to sell it to so, people outside it, you. David. I, I suspect. Why does it cost a lot to make? I mean, he yeah. The 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 whole production method is very kind yeah. of intuitive, and it takes yes. a long yeah. time, yeah. and they yeah. spend a long time rehearsing, and the yeah. films rehearsals, and then they do lots of voiceover like years after. Oh, so yeah. I mean, it, I mean, just for their time, I'm guessing, and 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 you know, there was multiple editors on it, and mm. you know, we are going to talk more about uh, Terence Malick in just a second in the uh, film club, but we should do some scores for song to song now. Look, I'm a fan of Little White Lies magazine anyway. Um, but David, I know as the editor, you always seem to review the Terence Malick films. You don't give it to anybody else. And I know that even Knight of Cups, which a lot of people didn't like, you always give them big marks. Always. So I'm going to come to Eleanor first, feeling like I know what I'm going to get from you. Anticipation, I would say too, because I did not really like Knight of Cups. Uh-huh. But I would say I like Knight of Cups more than like this. Okay, that's interesting. Which is, I don't really know why. I mean... Yeah, I think it's because there's more of a structure in Nine of Cups. You're on the side of one mm-hmm. character who is exploring his own emotions and who is like doing nothing because he, his job is like not doing anything. Whatever. Yeah. I actually quite like Christian Bale in that role, and uh, yeah, and I thought this one was uh, song to song was less easy to enjoy because because it's te- several people going through that process, yes, of, all of, of them business. thinking yeah. about their emotions at the same time yeah, and like yeah. twirling around each other and not looking at each other when they're yeah. in the same room and stuff. And I was just like, okay, well, this is not... And then that's the thing, because then they meet those people who are just completely normal, those famous people, just yes. look at them and talk to them normally. And that's normally. why Patti Smith is striking in it, because yeah. she's just basically like... She oh, says the she's same just talking things. like a real person. Yeah. She says the same very emotional yeah, yeah. things, but like face-to-face. So can I, uh, can I press you for your middle score? Uh, two. Two and, and two and, and in retrospect the same two. Yeah. Uh, David, I'm guessing it's not going to be all twos. Well, let's just keep it quick. I'm just I'll give it the top the full top marks. It's brilliant. All it, three. It'll be like wow. one of my favourite films of the year. Really? And uh, I think we'll be talking about it in 20, 30 years. And this is a film that it doesn't matter what box office it gets now. It doesn't matter how people react to it now. It'll. This is an important movie. Okay. I should say that my scores were two because I hated Night of Cops and I actually expected it to be awful and I didn't think it was awful. Um, I've written down two figures for the middle because I couldn't decide whether it was a three or a four because in all honesty, the first half of the film I was on a four and then I just sort of got a bit bored and I became a three and then afterwards I'm going to say a three. Basically, I enjoyed it all told much more than Night of Cops but I watched Tree of Life very quickly after that and that also made me slightly reappraise Song to Song and so we're going to talk about Tree of Life next. It's time now for the Little White Lies Film Club, and each week we watch a classic film, or a film you might have missed, or a film worth reappraising. And this week, because Terence Malick has banged out yet another movie, Song to Song, we've been watching Terence Malick's Oscar-nominated, Palm Door-winning 2011 film, The Tree of Life, starring Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain. We also received a lovely email from listener Chris B, who wanted to know our thoughts on the film. So thank you very much to Chris for suggesting it. You can always suggest films uh, for us to do here on the Little White Lies Film Club. Now, this is a movie, unlike arguably Song to Song, that definitely has a couple of narrative threads to it. There's a couple of things that you can say it's about. One, it's very clearly about a family in Waco, Texas in 1956 and a father's relationship specifically with one of his three sons. It's also about 
everything ever, life, the universe, the lot. And this is why it was such a groundbreaking film at the time. And it marked uh, a significant movement forward for Terence Malick. Is that a fair thing to say, Ella? Um, I agree. I think so. Because I thought the movie, when I first saw it, I was quite young and I wasn't like as much into movies as I am now. I started really late. And I saw it by, my, like, I think with a friend, uh, daytime in the cinema in my hometown. And I was just completely blown away. Yeah. I, I didn't like everything. I uh-huh. didn't really in, understand everything. But I was just like completely baffled, but in a really good way by... Yeah all the stuff that I'd never seen before, like all the dinosaurs and then, and then the audacity to have dinosaurs and then a real kind of straightforward story about a family grieving and so on. Yeah. And then about God and then Champagne turns up and I was just like, wow, this is amazing, like the scope. And at the same time, it's about something so tiny. It's about mm. one person's mm. experience of life, that direct experience, even like tactile. Like there's so much like it's called haptic in the cinema it's like how you watch uh, an image and you can imagine what it feels like touching that object i think it's almost overwhelming at times it how is. intimate the tree the tree of life is in such simple ways as well i watched it last night and i hadn't watched it for six years since it came out and since then I, i've had a son i've got a little boy who's five years old now as you can imagine that brings a whole new resonance to a film that's about uh, parent-child relationships and there was a bit where I actually insisted when my wife came home later that night I insisted on showing her just one moment of a baby's face that was in such extreme close-up that we were talking about how he's managed to show you what it's it seems so simple what it's like to hold a baby in a way that I have never ever seen in a movie before just because he he has this ability to capture reality in this film and yet at the same time, David, because we've been talking about his other films as well, he's still making what some people would describe as an experimental movie. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's strange actually, because last week I mentioned a story about how I, I, I travelled with some other film critics to, to Lille in France yeah. to see the film Snowpiercer, oh, which yeah. was um, Bong Joon-ho's um, lost, lost, lost yeah. film that, never, that has never come out here. Um, and it, but it did come out in, in in France, and I've actually done that trip one other time, and that was for the Tree of Life because I I did have an earlier release there. Well, I don't know if you remember, but the the whole release of the film was very strange because it was going to come out, and then the company who were going to release it claimed they were going to release That's it before right. the Cannes That's World right. Premiere, yes. and then they lost it, and then someone else picked it up, yeah. and yeah. and then it was like unsure it kind of went into this limbo so you were like i gotta watch this i was like because i might it might not happen over here i i the the thing that the thing that got me and and at this point i will claim i wouldn't say i was the world's biggest terence malick fan before this oh okay before this point i this was like a road to damascus moment it really was and i I like his previous films but none of none of them i would say were in you know i i truly loved yeah. And I remember there's a Canadian film magazine called Cinemascope. Uh-huh. Instead of getting one critic to, to review the film, I think they got like 20 critics uh-huh. to, to review it. When you see the film, that feels like a very apt thing to do. So yes. I think on their website, you can actually see yeah. this huge, long scrolling page where they've got all their critics to actually praise yeah. Yeah, write yeah, about yeah, the film. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's, it feels very like, yeah, appetizing. Everyone's going to have a unique experience. And also, you know, as I was just... Um, explain you know everyone you have a unique experience sort of every time 
you see this film. Absolutely. And I, I would say, I mean, I, I rewatched it this week for, I think, probably about the 10th time. I saw it about four or five times in the cinema, and I've watched it a couple of times on, on Blu-ray. And I checked the clock, and I think it was about three or four minutes before I was, like, blubbing, I think. Yeah. I mean, it is this complex film, and it, yes. it, it kind of, you know, beyond showing this family, it's contextualizing their their life with the creation of the universe. Yes. Um, which is obviously a very sort of bold, uh, radical thing to do. But actually, the thing the thing that gets me is just like, how could you film like filming Jessica Chastain's face? Yeah, just the way Jessica Chastain looks. Yeah, there's just something I just find overwhelmingly moving about that. And it's not, and I don't, and I hope that doesn't sound too like leery or no, I don't think it um, is. There's a sequence of her discovering one of the sons that you've you kind of then go on to spend this yeah. film with has died. I think in a in a, in a, I think as, it's a car I think crash. It's, a, it's it's never it's never fully. I thought it was underwater. This, this is the thing about Terence Malick films, and particularly this film. It doesn't matter how he died in a way. If you want to take that resonance that he's possibly died in the Vietnam War because he's died when he's nineteen as well. And like you say, it's really bold to have that upfront. Of course, you get that hit of emotion because Jessica Chastain is phenomenal in this film anyway her performance is incredible and of course you get that moment of emotion just from seeing her being given that news but then to immediately then go back to that those boys all being children and get so much about that but that, that's what i think is great about it i mean seeing that that it's one of those films that i think it, it really i mean it's the cliche it really does get better the more times you see it yep. even now seeing it what you know what this time i, I felt like i was seeing more discovering more things yeah. in it as well. I mean, I, I, I in 2012, which is like just a year yeah. after it came out, I was part of this poll for Sight and Sound magazine. Yeah, the 10 year, ten the, year the, the, the greatest films of all time. And and I and I, I didn't hesitate on putting this on my on my on top, your, 10. top 10. It was it was that in like I think directly after seeing it in this cinema in Lille, I can remember the credits rolling. Yeah. I I just I think I knew at that point. Yeah. You'd seen a I think I've seen one of the greatest films I've ever I've ever seen. And the, and the weird thing is, I think people who love it will will absolutely agree with it. I, I'm going to read out a few of the contacts that we've had. Uh, we've had Oliver David says, I've never seen so many people cry at the end of a film, uh, but also I've never seen so many people walk out of a film. Um, we've had uh, Wayne John Davis says, captivating movie that requires an open mind. Brilliant. Bobby McCarthy, one of the films of the century so far. But then you get a lot. I'm not going to read out all of them, but they also get people like Mark Round got in touch with us. Utterly self-indulgent goff. Um, you know, uh, Manus Mittal says, brilliant visuals. The film is a bit self-indulgent. We haven't really touched on the fact that he, he there are these incredible special effects that Douglas Trumbull, who hadn't worked as a special effects guy for like 20 years, he did the special effects for Blade Runner, most importantly for 2001, of the creation of the universe. You also get scenes, like you said, Eleanor, featuring a dinosaur behaving in a way that may have some resonance with the way Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain are battling in the way that they raise their children. It's not just about this family. Those are the bits that people may be put off for if they hear about it in advance. But what do they do? They they bring something extra, don't they? Well, that's the thing with this movie, especially when we compare it to Song to Song. I mean, to me, this whole the whole like space thing is like a big contextualization because this is the story of someone who died. I mean, it's about yeah. someone who died. So it's about like definite how how your experience on Earth is finite and you will die and yeah. it will stop. But then this whole life has been there forever and it's been going on forever. Yes. So every moment is so precious. And that's why you have such beautiful moments like uh, hands 
like uh, I think there's a shot of Jessica Chastain and like some really beautiful curtains and beautiful light yeah. and children running around not aware of what's going on. And I think that's what's so important in this movie. Why, to me, it works better than all the others is that it's all from the perspective of this child who's obviously grown up because yeah. it's Sean Penn in the end. But it's like he's seeing his his mother as this perfect version vision of grace, yeah. the way of grace. Yes. And his, his father, the way of nature, which yeah. is like way harsher and stuff. Yes. But that's the, the, the fact is why it works, and to me it doesn't work as well in the other movies, is that you are aware that it's the idealization of a child, of the way he's meant to see his mother and the yeah. way he sees her and yeah. the way he remembers her. He's all about memory and flashbacks. It's like the whole childhood thing is basically his memory, remembering everything that happened. So to me, this, this whole, like, it's also as a, at a moment of crisis that he's having these really, really intense emotions. And yeah. you can understand why he will feel such strong emotions all at the same time in this one moment. And in the other films, it's not just this moment of crisis, it's just any moment waking moment of their lives one of the things that i think i think that um that there, there are all these like little associations like there's a bit in the sort of creation sequence where you see these like little kind of weird twirly things yes. like yeah. floating down into some sort of explosion and then later on you see like one of brad pitt's because he he is an inventor yeah. and you see one of brad pitt's like blueprints and it is a little twirly thing yes. and then you see like you you see jellyfish in a sea like like really gracefully floating these white kind of veils and then you see and it doesn't just cut to it but later you see the uh the the curtains billowing and there are so many of these small little connections between like the the it just it's not free associative it's like associative there yeah. is like it's all it, part of the whole it feels random it feels that it's just like a random montage it's just moments it's just uh, but then the more you see it, the more you understand that every single frame is like purposeful, and yeah. every and and I think that does have a, a a kind of larger metaphysical thing to it. Is like everything is connected, connected. in this yeah. kind of very magical way. It feels like we could talk about the Tree of Life. I know. for like and we you know, all day, and I, and I feel like maybe we, maybe let's this conversation will com- continue. Let, let, let's do a, a three-hour special because <laughs> I feel like there's so much that that we haven't discussed. Because there's so there is so much in this movie. I'm just going to ask you if you could just say very succinctly because I just think this is an interesting point, given that we've seen Song to Song and we've seen Tree of Life. If you've never seen a Terence Malick movie. Do you wade right into Tree of Life and get that massive Malick hit, or do you warm up with something else first, Eleanor? Well, I mean, the easy answer would be Badlands, but like because that's the most accessible. Yeah, which is I think it's if you you can find some connections between yeah. those movies, but I it's not even like I don't feel very very strongly with this, about about this movie as much as I would like to. Okay. So I don't know. I think if you watch Tree of Life without knowing anything, that could be actually if you're really ready. You can allow yourself to be confused by some stuff. You can allow yeah. yourself to be baffled by the planets. I think that's the matter. You don't need to let yourself planets. go into it a bit, do you? Exactly. And I think it's like I think it's kind of built in the movie that you're a bit baffled okay. at first, and like it's a surprise effect. So I think that's why. Yeah, I think it would be good to watch Tree of Life if you haven't seen any Malik movies before. I think I think maybe diving into. I, I think that the Thin Red Line for me feels like the film that's kind um, of yeah. Te- takes from the, the the late stuff and the early stuff and kind of melds it yeah. together and and then I mean I love the new world as well like those those two films yeah. I, I, again I love them both but not on a level that I love his I'm not going to ask you to comment on this I'm just going to yeah. say it and people can we'll be in touch with about Malik I'm sure about after this conversation anyway but perhaps the argument that you've got there is Tin Red Line and the New World and the Tree of Life have a narrative of some kind mm. and his most recent three perhaps don't I'm just going to port that forward. 
and I'm, David's already we'll, we'll, champing at the bit. We'll, but we'll dispute just have, that. We'll just off, have to have an arm air. wrestle about it afterwards. Next week, I love your choice for next week, David. Tell me about next week's film club movie. Well, um, so next week we're going to be talking about... Well, I'm, I'm actually not going to be here for this, but my colleague Adam is... Oh, so you've just batted this over to someone indeed, else. Indeed, yes. Uh, Eleanor's sister, Manuela, in fact, mm-hmm. is going to be on, and they're going to be talking about Nagisa Oshima's uh, 1986 film, Max Mon Amour, yeah. which we've kind of picked in connection to <laughs> the fact that we're going to also be talking about the War of the Planet of the Apes. Yes. It's about uh, an ape called Max. Indeed. And it's called Max Mon Amour. Because uh, Charlotte Rampling yeah. decides to fall in love with it yeah. so it's it's a kind of you know I think it's I wouldn't say it's a well-loved film <laughs> but I think it's certainly it so certainly feels relevant yeah. and uh, I remember seeing it years ago and thinking it was quite yeah. an, an interesting film I by saw, an interesting filmmaker and yeah it'll be interesting yeah, to see I, saw, I saw it as a teenager and it, it felt transgressive and yes. that is worth seeing in a movie. No, absolutely. Uh, do watch it if you can. Max Monamore, it's called. Send us your thoughts about that, about Terence Malick. I really hope you get in touch with us about Terence Malick generally. Uh, send anything you've got to uh, Twitter, which is at LWLies, or uh, email is truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. As David said, next week on the podcast, there will be a discussion of The War of the Planets of the Apes and also what I know was David's favourite film at Cannes this year, Sophia Coppola's uh, The Beguiled, starring Nicole. Cole Kidman and many others. Oh, David, there was one other thing you wanted to plug just before we go. Yeah, I just really wanted to give a, a shout out to a, another film that's going to be released in the UK this week. Uh, probably quite a, a sort of dinky release. Uh, it's a film called The Human Surge by a director called Eduardo uh, Williams. Um, it's a kind of, I, I guess it fits a little bit in with uh, Song to Song. It's it's an experimental film. Okay. It's basically following a series of teens in various locales around the world in, I think, Philippine, Africa, Latin America. It's kind of dead-end teens not with nothing to do. It follows them kind of just walking around randomly, looking at, like, uh, connecting through the internet, like connecting through, like, internet videos and it's basically a film about the sort of how the digital world connect is connecting people now okay. uh, and but whether you know it's it's still the world is still boring with this okay <laughs> so and on, the, on uh, that note and, and, and I mean that in the in yeah. the in the most enthusiastic possible way you might have of to course. you might have to seek it out but David is urging you to do so that is the I human at the ICA in London, so. uh, thank you ever so much for listening other people will be back uh, with Truth and Movies uh, next week this was a seven digital production 